Well, the fact that you are here tonight, I am going to trust that you are representative of the good soil. You heard Sunday morning's message, right? That uh, those who um, were true believers, uh, those who were genuine followers of Christ, whenever he told a parable, um, while they may have not have understood everything in the parable right away, they wanted to come back for more. And so they would come to him and they would say, hey, Jesus, could you, uh, could you explain that to us? Could you give us a little more detail? And so I'm hoping that uh, what motivated you to be here tonight is because you wanted to come back for more, if you will. You wanted to hear the word of Christ, not the word of Ken or anyone else, but you wanted to hear what Christ had to say uh, through uh, these parables that he told. And so um, as uh, we typically do in the summer, uh, we suggest some reading uh, to do. Uh, it's always good to have a, your Bible and a, and a good Christian book, right? And always reading your Bible, that's the first priority, but then having a good Christian book to be reading along with it. And so we wanted to suggest for you this summer, uh, in light of this series on the parables, that you would consider picking up a copy of John MacArthur's new book called The Parables. Parables, the mysteries of God's kingdom revealed through the stories Jesus told. This is hot off the press, and so uh, some of you probably already have this book, but if you don't, uh, this might be a great uh, kind of a supplemental read uh, this summer as we go through these, uh, this series on the parables. Uh, we ordered a, a, a chunk of these uh, over in the Resource Center. I don't know if it'll be open afterwards, but you might be able to stop in there and, and grab a copy of this, or maybe Sunday, or you, of course you can get it on Amazon or Grace to You, however you want to do that. But I would highly recommend this as, as something to read through this summer. And uh, for those of you that want a, a little extra something-something, uh, those of you that are familiar with our resource center, we have a, a rack in there uh, that spins around, and it has all these little pamphlets from Rose Publishing. And uh, they're, they're excellent, excellent resources, and they just take a subject, and they really boil it down to the essence and kind of give you a quick overview of whatever uh, subject matter uh, they tackle. And they just kind of do it in something like this, real simple format, and uh, kind of the cliff notes, if you will. Those of you that remember, they still have cliff notes. That was my day and age, right? They still got cliff notes. Um, anyway, this is the kind of the cliff notes uh, version of a lot of biblical issues. So here's one uh, on the parables of Jesus, 39 stories Jesus told. And so there's some really good background information here, just very succinct. What are the parables? Uh, why did Jesus tell them? How should we interpret the parables? And then it goes through uh, kind of a survey of each one of the parables and compares them to, to one another. So uh, just kind of a quick reference guide here. And they, they, they pack a lot into a little space here. So I'd encourage you that we've got some of those in the Resource Center as well. You may want to um, uh, pick up. Well, take your Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And uh, we're going to be looking at Verses 44 through 46, um, a very short parable, really not just one parable, but two parables back to back, and uh, really two of my favorite parables. In fact, I mentioned on, on Sunday that uh, in all these years of being a pastor, I've never preached on these two parables. Uh, I've, I've referenced them often. Uh, but never actually did an exposition of these uh, three verses. So I'm really excited about this evening. And so let me just read the text, and then we'll uh, 
talk about what it means. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. You may have heard the story several years back. uh, An unidentified couple in Northern California was walking their dog on their property and saw a rusty metal can sticking out of the ground. They dug it out and they found that it was filled with rare gold uh, rush era coins in nearly mint condition. We're talking 1847 to 1894. And so after doing doing, doing a further search, they discovered over 1,400 gold coins in these eight decaying metal cans that were scattered throughout their backyard, essentially, at different levels uh, 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 and different depths of soil. One of the rarest coins... Uh, alone, all by itself, was worth $1 million, one gold coin. The entire, what they call Saddle Ridge Hoard, that was what they called it, is valued at more than $10 million and is considered to this day to be the greatest buried treasure ever found in the United States of America. Interesting. And when the incredible find was first covered in the news, most of the reporters made the point that the odds of winning the lottery were several thousand times better than the chance of this couple finding such a rare treasure. Now, the vast majority of our population, I think, will only dream of winning the lottery there's a lot of people that play the lottery and they, they'll only ever dream of winning it or, or finding a, a buried treasure of some, or some rare jewel that's worth more than anyone could possibly imagine. But the value of all the greatest discoveries that have ever been made in the history of the world combined don't begin to compare with the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest treasure that anyone could ever find. Now, some of you who are older in here uh, will remember, as I do, back in the 1970s, Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew is how they, uh, they, call, they go by Crew, they launched an evangelistic campaign called, everybody remember? I found it. That's it, I found it. And they emblazoned this simple slogan, I found it, in quotes, on flyers and bumper stickers and pins and t-shirts, and and they encouraged Christians to display these things and wear them in hopes that it would pique someone's interest, and if and when they asked, well, what did you find? Well, there was a perfect opportunity to share Christ with them. Well, these two parables which are only found here in Matthew's gospel, by the way, are about what happens to someone when they find Christ. Some people find Christ even though they aren't looking for him. Others find him after years of searching. Some people get saved who didn't even know they needed to be saved. While others knew there was something missing in their life and so they went on a quest for truth, uh, for true meaning and fulfillment in life, which they eventually discovered in Christ. And other than that 
one difference between these two parables, a, a man stumbling upon a treasure, as it were, and a merchant searching for a pearl, uh, these two parables have identical meanings. Now, we can't know for sure whether Jesus told these parables in sequence like this or whether Matthew arranged them back to back on purpose. In any case, they obviously form a pair and they make the same basic point. And the question we need to ask ourselves tonight is, okay, what is the point of these short side-by-side parables? Well, it's always important that you start with the context, right? And, and these two parables are part of a series of parables that Jesus told to describe the kingdom of heaven. Look back at verse 24. Uh, well, even earlier than that, chapter 13 begins with the parable of what? The soils, right? And I mentioned that on Sunday. The parable of the soils was the first parable that Jesus told. It was the gateway, if you will, the launching pad, the foundation of all the other parables he told. And so as soon as he was done telling the parable of the soils, uh, he went on to talk about, uh, to tell another parable, uh, or as I should say a series of parables, all about the kingdom of heaven. Notice verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And this is the story of the, the, the weeds and the wheat or the wheat and the tares. Verse 31, uh, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. This is the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Verse 47, after this parable, uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. This is a great parable about uh, how every, all the fish are gathered together, and at the end, the good fish will be separated from the bad fish. It's kind of like a sheep and goat's uh, very similar to the sheep and the goats. And then look at verse 51. Jesus, after telling this series of parables about the kingdom of heaven is like, fill in the blank, he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And so all that to say, Jesus wanted his followers to understand what his kingdom was like. And so he compared it to examples or experiences from their everyday lives. You may remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first thing that came out of Jesus' mouth, according to Mark, is he said this, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so the kingdom of God, you see that sometimes in the gospels or this term, the kingdom of heaven, they're synonymous terms that Jesus used to summarize God's glorious plan to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection and make them citizens of his kingdom who will one day reign with him for all eternity in heaven. That is a summary statement of the kingdom of heaven, really God's plan of salvation. Um, at his first coming, Jesus offered to save the Jews. He offered himself to Israel as their Messiah, who 
who had come to set up his literal earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. However, as you know, uh, according to the sovereign purposes of God, the Jews rejected Christ's rule over them and crucified him instead. And yet God raised Christ from the dead and restored him to his place of honor at his right hand in heaven, where he reigns today as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will return someday to set up his kingdom here on earth um, like he was planning to do when he originally came. In the meantime, Jesus is establishing his spiritual kingdom in the hearts and lives of Gentiles and Jews, but particularly Gentiles, who recognize him as the King of kings and Lord of lords and are willing to repent of their sin and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. And so there's really nothing mysterious or challenging when it comes to understanding what the kingdom of heaven means. That's the first thing you have to ask yourself two times here in verses 44 and verse 45. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. So what is the kingdom of heaven? It's it's the sphere of salvation in Christ. That's simply what it's talking about. And so I don't think there's much disagreement about um, you know what the kingdom of heaven refers to. However, there is a huge disagreement among Bible scholars regarding who the man and the merchant represent and what the treasure and the pearl symbolize. And unlike the parable of the soils, as we learned about on Sunday, Jesus never provided an explanation for this parable. And so we're left to interpret this on our own, on our own, Right? with the help of the Holy Spirit and the basic principles of interpretation, which we call hermeneutics, which are just basically laws, uh, just like in order to do certain experiments or certain laws in, of science that you must abide by when you interpret a passage of Scripture, certain laws or principles or tools uh, for interpretation we call hermeneutics. And, and uh, just to, to make that very simple, there, there, are, there are just two ways that we can interpret this parable. You can either interpret it literally, these parables literally, or you can interpret them allegorically. Okay, Those are basically the two methods of interpretation. There's, there's literal interpretation and there's allegorical interpretation of Scripture. So the, the allegorical method of interpretation typically reads meaning into every detail of a parable and, and it finds different, even, even different levels of meaning. And it tends to stretch a parable far beyond its original purpose, and the parable can end up meaning virtually anything the reader wants it to mean. The way they, they used to say it in seminary is they, they would make the, the, the parable walk on all fours. Uh, in other words, they would, just, they would just give all these different meanings to it, and everything in the parable had some meaning. You're like, whoa, time out. I think you're complicating a very simple story here. And so some believe that when it comes to this parable, that the man in verse 45 uh, who found the treasure and the merchant who was seeking fine pearls, that they represent Christ. And the buried treasure in verse 44 is symbolic of Israel, the Jewish remnant of God's kingdom, if you will, or the kingdom of heaven, And the pearl of great value is the church, the Gentile remnant. In other words, 
how they interpret these two parables is simply this, that Christ gladly sold all that he had. He willingly gave up his life to purchase us for himself. We are a prized possession made up of both Jews and Gentiles. That's how they interpret that passage. I'll just read one example. This is one commentator who I read all the time and quote often from and typically favorably because we typically agree on most uh, every interpretation of the scripture. But, but here he and I diverged radically. And this is just an example of what one commentator wrote. Quote, the merchant is the Lord Jesus. The pearl of great price is the church. At Calvary, he sold all that he had to buy this pearl, just as a pearl is formed inside an oyster through suffering caused by irritation, so the church was formed through the piercing and wounding of the body of the Savior, end quote. You kind of get a little bit of the feel there of how, whoa, we're talking about oysters now and how pearls are developed and, right, they, they begin to be very allegorical and they bring meaning into a parable that really isn't there. Jacob and I had, uh, my son Jacob and I, we had a conversation the other day driving to his football camp and uh, I said, hey, let's read this passage together. I'm going to preach on it this Wednesday night. And, 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 uh, and so I asked him to read it and I said, now tell me what that means. And so he went right through that text and explained to me exactly what that passage means. Well, it's just, you know, here's, here's a treasure. A guy's looking for a treasure. The treasure is Christ, and, and the pearl is Christ. And when they find him, they, they're willing to give up everything to have Christ. I'm like, exactly. I said, now, do you know that some people interpret that exactly the opposite? And I explained to him what I just explained to you about all that stuff. And being the budding theologian that he is, his reaction was, that's dumb. They can't read. That's what he said. That's dumb. They can't read. And I'm like, good for you, Jacob. I couldn't have said it better myself. You say, well, how did they come to this conclusion? Well, based on verse 38, and the field is the world, that's the explanation that Jesus gave of the wheat and the tares at the field in that parable, that particular parable actually represented the world. And so if we draw that into here, then we know the field is the world and, and we're the treasure that Christ you know, captures out of the world or finds or, or redeems out of the world. Um, which, by the way, that breaks down because the, the soil or the field in the parable of the soils, did that represent the world? What did that represent? The human heart. And, and so you can't just assume just because uh, the field meant this, the world in this parable, that it's going to mean the same thing in another parable. You have to be careful when you, when you make those kind of comparisons. And they also would look at Old Testament passages like Exodus 19.5 and Psalm 135 verse 4 where Israel is called God's special treasure, his prized possession. And so they, they bring in the Old Testament uh, into this and say, well, that's, you know, this is the, the, the treasure must be Israel. But, but clearly the the main motive for this allegorical interpretation is to safeguard the doctrine of salvation. Specifically, that a person is saved by grace through faith alone. And if you interpret these parables literally, like we're going to do tonight, it appears 
that people are entering the kingdom or getting saved through their own sacrifice and effort, which is what? Heresy. It's false teaching. And, and again, these who, those who take an allegorical interpretation will often argue that a literal interpretation just, just breaks down at every point. Uh, salvation is a free gift. It's not for sale. Uh, we don't find Christ. He finds us. We have nothing to offer Christ in and of ourselves. Uh, a converted sinner would never hide Christ after finding him, right? That just, and so they see it all breaks down. But others would argue that the allegorical interpretation breaks down as well. Listen to one commentator, and this is what he said. Christ did not stumble across Israel by accident or discover the church after a long time of searching. Furthermore, the Lord did not purchase Israel and the church because they were rare treasures worthy of great sacrifice. They were like all sinners, useless debris until after Christ redeemed them. He did not discover inherently priceless commodities and then purchase them. Rather, he bought what was utterly worthless and made it precious. So either way, you can make an argument, right, that, that one interpretation breaks down. But having said all that, what happens? Let's just consider what happens when you simply a, apply a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation to this parable. In other words, what is the most normal natural way to understand what Jesus was saying. How would a, a 16-year-old guy, like my son, reads the passage and is asked, what does that mean, and what is the most normal, natural way to understand that, and boom, there's only one thing that's going to come out. I guarantee you, Jacob was, well, Dad, you know, I think this is talking about Israel and the church, and it's really a dispensational understanding of this text. And, you know, and, and, and those people who are more covenantal, you know, they just don't understand, right? No, what's the normal, natural way to understand this? And, and, and more importantly, how would these two parables have been most obviously understood, not by a 16-year-old boy living in the 21st century, but by the disciples who first heard them in the first century. That's what you've got to ask yourselves. How, how would the disciples heard this? And also, we can't forget the analogy of Scripture. I mean, it's not like this is the only text we have to go by. And, and whenever you come across a, a verse or a passage where the interpretation is not immediately clear, you need to compare it to other passages in the Bible, particularly other, in this case, other passages that record what Jesus said during his life and ministry. And so I will say to you tonight that I believe the man and the merchant in this parable represent us and the buried treasure and the pearl symbolize Christ. And, and both of these parables picture how a person should respond when they discover the amazing offer of salvation in Christ. I put this in the email that I sent out yesterday Kind of the, the point of the parable. What is the profound, eternal lesson from this simple everyday story? It's this. When a person finds Jesus Christ and truly recognizes the surpassing value of knowing him, they gladly relinquish their life and surrender everything and sacrifice anything to have a relationship with him. Let me say that again. When a person finds Jesus Christ 
and truly recognizes the surpassing value of knowing him, they gladly relinquish their life and surrender everything and sacrifice anything to have a relationship with him. I think this is the the simplest interpretation that makes the most sense and is consistent with everything else the Bible teaches and specifically what Jesus taught about being a Christian. Just one example, maybe two examples. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. God's calling out here, Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And so God is talking about buying something. And he's, what he's saying is those of you who are hungry and you're thirsty and, and you're searching for truth and for meaning and significance, you want to know what life is all about, come and buy wine and milk. And in other words, find your satisfaction uh, and fulfillment in me without money and without cost. And then in the New Testament, and we're going to look at this in a little more depth as we close, but just... Uh, the, the story of the, the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Notice the language that Jesus uses here. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And he told the rich young ruler this. Um, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have what? Treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so, all that to say, the man and the merchant, I believe, found Christ. And you'll often hear a new convert said, Hey, I found Christ. You may have even said that. And whether they were passionately searching for Christ or just cluelessly wandering through life, that they suddenly met Christ. And you were struck, let's talk about you, you were struck by the surpassing value of the salvation that he offers, and you gladly surrendered your sinful lifestyle, and you completely devoted yourself to follow Christ. Isn't that what happened? And so with that as our our background, let's just look quickly at these two parables. And really what they are, they're two examples of people who recognized how valuable Christ is and they joyfully surrendered everything to gain him, to gain salvation. And so let's look first of all at the buried box. The buried box. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here was a man who was... Um, may have been a hired hand or maybe he was leasing the land and may have been plowing or digging a ditch or planting something when a shovel hits something hard that, that didn't sound like a rock. And um, he didn't have any way of knowing and nor do we who put it there or how long it had been in there But what we do know is that in ancient Palestine, people often hid their treasure in fields, 
rather than their house where a thief would naturally go to steal their stuff or, or, or um, marauding armies. There was, uh, Palestine was being constantly overrun by marauding armies and they would come into the homes and they would steal people's stuff. And so there was, uh, there was no banks in those days, no safe deposit boxes. There was no investment firms right, where you would hide your valuables. And so, uh, so you would just find the best place to hide them. And so uh, a popular place was to dig a big hole and bury your treasure. But if that owner died during a war or of natural causes, he would carry that secret with him to the grave. No one would know about the hidden treasure. And again, along comes this guy. We don't know necessarily who he was, but he digs up this treasure and he, or he digs up this, this box of whatever it is, and he's shocked to find this valuable loot here. And he thought to himself, if I own this field, then this treasure would be mine. And so he quickly covers it up and went and did what he had to do to buy the field. Now, he knew the present owner hadn't buried the treasure because the, apparently the guy didn't know anything about it. He, he would have never sold him the field in the first place, right? Or at least would have removed the treasure before he sold it to him. Um, again, we don't know specifically about the details of ownership laws in Jesus' day, so we shouldn't call into question this guy's morality, right? This is not like you're walking down the road and you find a $100 bill and you're like, yes! You know, your first reaction should be, oh man, I wonder who lost this, and you want to try to find the rightful owner, right? Well, can I point out here that this guy did show integrity? I mean, he could have grabbed that treasure and ran. Or he could have taken just enough to, out of the treasure to buy the, 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 the field. But he didn't do any of those things. He, he went and sold everything that he had to buy it. Now, again, the parable isn't stressing ethics here, but the value of Christ. Don't miss the point. Um, the acquisition here would cost him a ton of money, but it was totally worth it. I mean, he, the idea here is he didn't give it a second thought here to selling everything he, he owned to buy the field with this treasure. Why? Because what he would give away didn't even begin to compare with what he was getting, and so he did it with joy. I love that. Don't miss that. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I mean, he was giddy with excitement. Now, listen. When's the last time you had to go and drain your savings account to, make, to pay something, right? That was not, you were not giddy with excitement. There was no joy in that, right? I mean, typically when you have to sell all you own or you, you drain your, your entire savings account or your retirement fund, I mean, that's scary. That's stressful. This guy was happy about it. He was pumped. And family and friends may have thought he was crazy, Dude, this is a risky move. You're, this is a foolish decision. I mean, this is like, you know, usually wise investors will diversify, right? They don't just put all their money in one thing. They diversify and they kind of make sure a little over here, a little over here. In case one thing tanks, they still got some more. I mean, he was just going for it. And he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew he would have been foolish not to do it. And in his mind, there was no risk at all. It wasn't like, well, can I get a receipt just in case I want to return this? 
There wasn't that thought at all. Sometimes we're like, oh, this is a major purchase. I'm going to make sure I can return it, right? There was no thought of that. I mean, this was the ultimate investment. He was convinced he was getting the deal of a lifetime. This was a no-brainer decision for this guy. And so he went for it. He joyfully sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Just so he could get this buried box. Well, how about the precious pearl? Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here was a merchant, a guy who bought and sold stuff for a living, would travel around, and that was just the way uh, he did business. And in his travels, he came across a pearl unlike anything he'd ever seen before. And this guy had been around. In those days, pearls were an extremely desired and valued commodity. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, don't cast your, what, pearls before swine. I mean, he talked about the, the grossest thing and the, the most majestic thing, if you will, your pearls and swine. Don't do it. First um, Timothy 2.9, Paul told the ladies not to show off their beauty by putting pearls in their hair. Uh, again, just an example of just how precious of a commodity uh, pearls were. They were in high demand. Merchants had to go uh, to the Red Sea in Egypt, uh, to the Persian Gulf, even as far away as India to find uh, pearls. And the farther you traveled, the finer the pearls were that you could find. Now, we don't know how far or how long this man had traveled, but we do know that he found this one particular pearl unlike anything he'd ever seen or would ever see again. I mean, this was the finest pearl he'd ever seen. He knew that, that a pearl so rare, so flawless like this comes along once in a lifetime. And so he saw this as a chance of a lifetime. He wouldn't be happy until this pearl of unequaled, unrivaled beauty was his, and it was a now or never proposition. And so, again, just like the man with the field, the treasure in the field, he showed the same kind of zeal and dedication and willingness to sell everything in order to acquire the pearl. He considered his assets, he did the math, he decided to sell everything he owned to buy this one pearl beyond compare. I wonder if he had to try to keep a straight face while he was making that transaction, not wanting to tip off the seller that he was getting the deal of a lifetime. I mean, this was an unbelievable exchange. That's the point. This is too good to be true. And as John MacArthur said so famously in his classic book, The Gospel According to Jesus, that Christianity really boils down to exchanging all that we are for all that Christ is. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. You exchange all that you are for all that Christ is. Tell me that's not a deal of a lifetime. Spurgeon preached a sermon on the pearl of great price, and he titled it A Great Bargain. <laughs> a great bargain. It is a great bargain. Speaking of John MacArthur, this is what he said in uh, his chapter on 
these parables in the gospel according to Jesus. He says, this is the kind of totally committed response the Lord Jesus calls for. A desire for him at any cost. Absolute surrender. A full exchange of self for the Savior. It is the only response that will open the gates of the kingdom. Seen through the eyes of this world, it is a, as high a price as anyone can pay. But from a kingdom perspective, it is really no sacrifice at all. And if you know any famous missionaries who have spent their life serving Christ overseas and everyone's like, oh man, what an amazing, I can't believe all that you've sacrificed. And their, their, their knee-jerk response is what? I never made a sacrifice. What are you talking about? I know Christ. I get to serve Christ. What's the sacrifice in that? And so really, it's all about the value It's all about the value of that treasure and the value of that pearl and the value of Christ. And when you value something, when you realize how valuable it is, you're willing to surrender everything, to sacrifice anything, and you do it joyfully. And again, this was a no-brainer decision for this guy. And the point is, when Jesus becomes the object of our desire Even if it costs us our lives, it's a price we're willing to pay. Years ago, I came across a a hypothetical dialogue based on the story of the pearl of great price. And it's really what might the transaction between the seller and the buyer, uh, what might that have sounded like? And so it might have gone something like this. I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says, it's expensive. Well, how much, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Well, do you think I could buy it? Well, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have. We make up our minds, all right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have? Well, let's write it down. I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? Well, that's all. That's all I have. Well, nothing more. Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Well, how much? We start digging. Well, let's see, 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. That's fine. What else do you have? Well, nothing. That's all. Where do you live? In my house. Yes, I have a house. Well, the house too then. Writes that down. You may have to live in my camper. Oh, you have a camper. That too. What else? I'll have to sleep in my car. Oh, you have a car. Yeah, I have two of them. Well, both of them become mine. Both cars, what else? Well, you already have my money, my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? And the seller says, are are you alone in this world? Well, no, I have a wife and three children. Oh, yes, your wife and children too. What else? (laughs) I have nothing left. I'm left alone now. Suddenly, the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. But then he goes on. Now listen. I will allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I'm the owner. 
See, being a Christian means giving up everything we have and everything that we are to Christ. And we, along with everything else in our life, comes under his control. He becomes the owner. He becomes the master of it all. And we must use it all for his honor and his glory. Now let me be clear. This parable, or these parables, are not about how a person is saved. This is not teaching a works-based salvation. I want to make sure that's very clear, because the Bible's very clear that salvation is a free gift from God that doesn't cost anything. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, or you can't, you can't work for it. It is a free gift of God, right? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. So you say, well, how can we say there's a cost here? Jesus Christ paid the price for our salvation in full, once and for all, when he died on the cross, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. We have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. So to say there's a price to pay sounds like heresy, right? Well, that's all true, but it was Jesus Christ himself who said that there's a cost to Christianity. Again, the analogy of Scripture here, Luke chapter 14 Jesus turned to this large crowd and confronted them, and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the what? The cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All observe it, begin a ridicule, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so Jesus challenged everyone who wanted to become a Christian to carefully consider that cost. Again, not a cost to buy it, but a cost in terms of salvation's impact on a sinner's life. How is this decision going to impact your life? How is it going to change your life? Somebody walked up to me earlier and had a shirt on that said, freedom is not free. Well, we know what that means in our country, right? That's a great statement when it comes to, you know, salvation is a free gift of God. We're freed from sin, right? But at the same time, it's very costly. It's very costly. Well, just very quickly, just to maybe put some color into this parable, not that it needs any more color, but just turn over a few pages to Matthew 19, Matthew 19, and I want to just compare two examples as we close tonight, because I think there's two people in Scripture who illustrate these two parables in two opposite ways, someone who didn't do this, was not willing to sell all to gain Christ, and one who was. The first one is the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16. I already referenced him once. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? In other words, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? That's what he's asking. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but you wish to enter into life. Keep the commandments. 
And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you should not com- commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He was essentially telling him the same thing as he was saying in the parables of the treasure in the field and the the pearl of great price. But notice how he responded, verse 22. And, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he, was not, for he was one who owned much property. In other words, he was unwilling to sell everything or to sacrifice everything. He's like, whoa, that, that's like, man, I, that means I gotta give up all my stuff. And I got a lot of stuff. And, and basically what he made a decision between what he valued the most. And he valued his stuff more than he valued Christ. And notice how Jesus responded here. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, by the way, enter the kingdom of heaven, right? We're talking about that. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. Well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So he's clearly talking about salvation here. And, And for this guy to give up all his stuff to sell all of his possessions, for him, that was the one thing holding him back from truly committing his life to follow Christ. That, was, that would have evidenced genuine repentance on his part. And so they're like, well, then how can anybody be saved? Because we thought rich people had the, kind of the fast track to heaven, and now you're saying rich people have a harder time getting to heaven. We don't understand. He says, well, ultimately, uh, it, it's, it's impossible to be saved in and of yourselves, but God makes it possible. Well, as always, Peter was hanging on every word that Jesus said, and he acted as a spokesman to the rest of the disciples. Notice he says in verse 27, then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? He was like, whoa, I'm, 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 I'm following you, Jesus. You told that guy he needed to give up everything to follow you, and he would receive treasure in heaven, and, and hey, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you have You who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, you're going to get your reward in due time. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit what? Eternal life. What was the question of the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, by the way, you're going to be saved. You're, or you're saved. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to go to heaven when you die. And so he was assuring them that um, they would be rewarded many times over during their lifetime. So, The point is, listen, it's true that Jesus Christ demands great sacrifice, but he also rewards great sacrifice. 
And Walter Chantry, in his book, The Shadow of the Cross, explains this well. He says, quote, not one man has ever sacrificed for his Lord without being richly repaid. He said, if the cross is only contrasted with earthly pleasures lost, it may seem hard and threatening. But when the cross is weighed in the balances with the glorious treasures to be had through it, even the cross seems sweet. And that's the point. A, a true believer doesn't think about what he's losing. He, he's thinking about what he's getting. Big difference. Someone who got that was the Apostle Paul. Notice uh, just Philippians chapter 3, and with this we'll close. Philippians chapter 3. He's the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul is listing all that he had, all that he had earned, all that he uh, had achieved, if you will, in life. He says in Philippians 3, 5, he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have found as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the point of the parable of the treasure and the pearl. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen, no one more staunchly defended salvation by grace through faith alone, the freeness of salvation, than, than the apostle Paul. And yet he himself testified that in coming to Christ, he counted all these things as loss. He, he willingly surrendered as worthless, everything that he was. Why? To gain Christ. Listen, do you, do you see the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? Do you see that? And the reason why some of you aren't willing to surrender at all to Christ is because there's other things that you consider more valuable than Christ. What do you place value on? We're always talking about what's something worth? What am I willing to pay to have that? Is it, is it friends? Is it family? Is it possessions? Uh, listen, all these kinds of things take the place of, of God's kingdom in our heart. And the question is, what do you value most? How could you find such a great treasure and walk away. Don't be the rich young ruler who, who, who missed the true splendor of the gospel. He didn't, he didn't recognize the value of Christ. And so he rejected Christ and his glorious gospel. Don't be that guy. Make up your mind. Is Christ worth it or not? We have an expression we use about being sold out for Christ. This man, this merchant, man, they, they sold out to Christ, completely sold out to Christ. 
And so I ask you tonight, have, have you sold out to Christ? Has this transaction or exchange taken place in your life? Because it has to happen. You have to give up all that you are to gain Christ. It's an unbelievable exchange. But it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. And in the words of the hymn that we sang there before I got up here, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I, what? Freely give. Joyfully give. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Father, we thank you for this parable that is all about joyfully surrendering our lives to Christ because we recognize the surpassing value of knowing him. And Lord, we confess there's a lot of things in this world that we value. And some of them we value more than we value Christ. And so I pray that this would be a great reminder for us tonight that we would never put anything, we would never value anything more than we value Christ. And, and Lord, um, that if, if there's a Christian in here who's lost their joy and the Christian life just seems like a drudgery and that it's all sacrifice and, and, and it just doesn't seem to be, they've lost sight of the, the blessings and the rewards. Lord, I pray that, that you would restore the joy of their salvation, even as the, the man with joy sold all that he had. So restore that joy in our hearts. And Lord, for those who may be here tonight who, who have never made that exchange, they've never given up all that they are to gain all that Christ is, that they would, that they would not walk away sad tonight because they're unwilling to give up their life or their stuff or a relationship or anything so that they can have Christ. So Lord, accomplish your work of salvation as only you can by your spirit through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.